I grew up in a small town, not unlike Barrie, in northern New Jersey. Very rural, people knew each other, friendly kind of a place. And when I was growing up, um, both of my parents served as uh, volunteers in the town. My father as a volunteer fireman. It was a, a whole volunteer fire department. And my mother served uh, as a volunteer with the rescue squad, the ambulance that would go to accidents and uh, people having trouble. So this was a very uh, normal part of my life growing up. It was just something that they did. And it was interesting, it was kind of like it, it tuned us in to uh, what was going on in the town. They had this device in the house, it, uh, kind of an uh, emergency radio thing called a plectron, which is very space-agey to me. <laughs> and when there would be a fire or an accident, uh, this radio would go off and say where it was uh, and also sometimes give some details whether it was a car accident or this or that and often speaking in this numerical code uh, you know car accidents had a certain number and house fires had another number and we kind of learned the code when I was a kid the other aspect to this experience was the town um, fire department had this whistle, a loud fire whistle that you could hear pretty much all over town. And it also had a pattern uh, that it uh, blew for either a fire or an accident, uh, calling for either both the firemen and the rescue squad or just the rescue squad. Uh, long, ongoing, sounds for fires and a series of, I think, three short sounds repeated for accidents. Of course, we kids had a whole other relationship with that whistle, which was, I don't know, maybe this was true for you where you grew up, I don't know, but it also signaled snow days in the winter when we weren't, when we didn't have to go to school, <laughs> when school was canceled. So we'd listen, you know, we'd go to bed when it was snowing and wait in the morning for the whistle. And so it was a very happy thing to hear the whistle at 6.30 and know you could, you know, keep sleeping and play in the snow. But it was interesting sort of just being tuned in in that way to people in the town facing some sort of uh, hardship and having my parents, you know, rush out the door to respond. And they did it, as I said, very matter-of-factly. And, you know, as kids, you don't really, well, we didn't really question, you know, why do you do this? Because it was just what they did. I'm pretty sure, uh, knowing that they weren't really religious people, that it wasn't that as the motivation. I think it was more a sort of civic-minded uh, motivation that had them just interested in helping in the town that they lived in. So this all came to mind, and it's interesting because I hadn't thought about it in a while. Uh, as I was reflecting on the topic for tonight's talk, which is that our practice is for the benefit of all beings. So tonight I'd like to just look at that theme, that truth, that way of understanding our practice, of aligning with it, of perhaps orienting our lives with that intention, that motivation, and the different forms that that might take for each of us, or the different forms that it can take, you know, as we develop in practice or mature in practice as the path unfolds.
it's something that's presented in the teachings and that I'm sure is familiar to all of you. And it's interesting to remember, perhaps, when we first heard it, whether we resonated with it or how it was received in our hearts. Sometimes I think that even before really uh, developing or maturing in our own understanding of such a truth, there's a way that we resonate with it pretty deeply or we sense its potential in our lives and in our practice. So the different ways that maybe we currently uh, align with it. Perhaps as an intention. Maybe it's an intention at the beginning of your day or at the beginning of a sitting period of practice that one consciously reflects on that intention may my practice be for the benefit of all beings. For myself, in my own experience with this, taking that on as a part of my practice, I can remember, and still sometimes, uh, kind of approaching it a bit timidly, like, dare I think that my practice might be of benefit to all beings. Or, sometimes, depending on what type you are, what personality type, what kind of conditioning or background or psychological makeup you have, maybe, like me, you have experienced a sense of really feeling quite connected with that intention that one's practice is for the benefit of all beings, but maybe kind of forgetting to include yourself (laughs) in the all beings. So I know that sometimes during the years of my practice, when I set that intention, I realize I'm doing that. And I'll sort of throw in a little, even me. (laughs) And honestly, I am not sharing that in a boastful way. I'm, it's, it's not about humility. It's really just a different form of conceit, that negative self-view. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. So maybe we use that reflection as an alignment, you know, before practicing remembering that our practice isn't for ourself alone. And we use it as a reminder of our interconnection with all beings. Maybe on a whole other scale, you may have taken on this motivation as a very central part of your spiritual path. Very central. The motivation to awaken for the benefit of all. Or perhaps the motivation, the commitment not to fully awaken until all beings are there. So this can be a very powerful form, very powerful commitment and motivation, this with this emphasis on the altruistic sense, a real commitment that practice is for the benefit of others. I'd like to share with you these vows this particular uh, translation or iteration of these vows is from the San Francisco Zen Center, the Bodhisattva vows. 
Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Very strong, clear commitment. Pretty powerful vows that perhaps some of you have taken. Another way that quite commonly we connect with this truth that our practice is for the benefit of all beings is in the form of a dedication or the sharing of merit. Last week on Thursday afternoon, I was next door over at the retreat center and I was just chatting with a friend before going home someone who's been practicing a number of years. And I was just starting to reflect on what I wanted to talk about in my next talk, this one tonight. And I had this idea. And so I shared that with my friend. And he immediately said, oh, boy, I remember so clearly my experience first hearing about the possibility, the opportunity to share merit. And I said, oh, really, I'd love to hear about it because I'm, I'm starting to think about that for a talk. And he told me this story, and I was so appreciative that he told me because I'd never really considered it that way myself. And I just really love that it helped fill out uh, my understanding of how it might be for people. So he said... When he first heard about the idea of merit, that generous acts and that doing meditation practice brings about this wholesome, skillful, beneficial energy, and that he was being invited to share it, to dedicate it to the well-being of others, his response was, no way! do that. I need that energy. (laughs) I need that for me, for my transformation. Like, I can't give it away. I've barely got any. (laughs) He felt really protective. (laughs) He didn't want to share it. He felt he couldn't afford to. (laughs) He shared it so freely. I was so appreciative. (laughs) And he said, of course, over the years, over time, you know, as his understanding grew and changed, so did that feeling of being protective, of needing to hoard his merit for his own development. (laughs) And quite naturally, he understood that he couldn't possibly be practicing for for himself alone. And so it became more uh, easy to actually make that conscious dedication of sharing the wholesome energy. There's a really strong emphasis, I think, in all spiritual traditions, although I can't say that I've studied them all, let alone practiced them all, that also is an expression of the tangible uh, way that spiritual practice is of benefit to other beings, and that is the emphasis on non-harming. So sometimes we understand that foundation for our practice, adherence to the precepts, 
as a way of building that steady ground for ourselves so that we can practice without regret, without remorse, committing to non-harming. But also, it's so clearly such a powerful gift, such a profound offering in the world. Certainly one this world could use more of. That dedicated commitment to non-harming, the incredible gift that that is to others, the gift of safety in our presence. My husband told me this story a while back about he's a builder and he sometimes recently, over recent years, has been doing work for these centers the study center and the forest refuge and the retreat center. And he was working at the retreat center when uh, this roofing crew came in. And they were there for a number of days, and it spanned over the course of a weekend. And so on Friday afternoon, they were uh, uncertain about what to do with their tools. They uh, wondered whether it might be okay to leave the tools, you know, on the job or whether they should remove them from the building and, uh, you know, pack them back up in their trucks and bring them back on Monday. And my husband said, oh, you know, no problem. You can leave your tools here. I mean, this place, he said, it's amazing, really. You could leave, you could drop a $100 bill around here And either it would still be there when you came back on Monday, or someone would have picked it up and brought it to the office and, you know, said, I found this. And then he said to them, just don't leave a bar of chocolate laying around. (laughs) Because there's this general understanding at the retreat center and often here in the staff areas you know that sort of chocolates are given as gifts and they're, they're left laying around and man, they go in a second. <laughs> I also wanted to share with you this lovely uh, poem by Galway Cannell about not harming He calls it, When One Has Lived a Long Time Alone. When one has lived a long time alone, one refrains from swatting the fly and lets him go and hesitates to strike the mosquito, though more than willing to slap the flesh under her. And one lifts the toad from the pit too deep to hop out of and carries him into the grass without minding the poisoned urine he slicks his body with. (laughs) And one envelops in a towel the swift who fell down the chimney and knocks herself against window glass and releases her outside and watches her fly free, a lifeline flung at reality when one has lived a long time alone. So the commitment to the precepts, the commitment to non-harming, as an act of generosity, both to ourselves and most certainly to others. Often we hear the word virtue, living a virtuous life, sort of aligning ourselves with goodness. There's a lovely passage in the Dhammapada about virtue. 
The perfume of sandalwood, rose bay, or jasmine cannot travel against the wind, but the fragrance of virtue travels even against the wind as far as the ends of the world, like garlands woven from a heap of flowers, fashioned from your life as many good deeds. I know when I look at my own relationship to goodness, there are shifts that I can see. You know, growing up uh, in 1950s, 60s America, it seems that, uh, seemed that my brother and I embraced some pretty traditional roles. Me, the good girl, and he, <laughs> the bad boy. <laughs> Which I think was a more challenging role. <laughs> And my relationship to goodness in those early years was a bit stressful, (laughs) a bit fraught. There was a way in which it was really my coping mechanism, my safety strategy, that if I was good, you know, I'd be all right. Or maybe the people around me would be happy. And it was really born more out of fear than any kind of wisdom at that young age. It's interesting, though, to see how that can shift over time with deepening understanding through life lessons, through practice. Ajahn Sumedho, hmm, I didn't bring it. (laughs) I had so many books tonight. Uh, Talked about virtue as the science of goodness and making our lives an exploration, or I don't know if he used this word, but an experiment in the science of goodness. What's that like? What does doing no harm mean in that context? Partly, as I said already, around keeping the precepts, you know, virtuous actions are really uh, protection for us, protection from the torture of regret. that we don't have so many thoughts and repercussions about unskillful actions when we're living that life uh, interested in the science of goodness. A life oriented in that way is also supported by this foundation, really, of happiness, of joy. There's a nobility, an integrity in ethical conduct, in purity of action. So non-harming is really a path to a certain kind of happiness, manifesting as simplicity in our lives, integrity, clarity, gladness, ease. I'm sure you know this in your own experience. When we're committed as a part of our ongoing practice to following the precepts and to paying attention, to being mindful, Self-respect, ease, and confidence are natural. They're natural. They naturally follow. And then we can see how keeping the precepts 
rather than any kind of uh, structure that we're sort of clinging to as, you know, out of any kind of fear of repercussions, we can keep them with this courage, this strength of commitment, the courage to do what's good, do what we know is right. So our practice benefits others through non-harming. It also benefits others through doing good. What does this look like for us in our lives? I mentioned the other evening that uh, it's a part of my weekly experience these days to be spending time with uh, my mother in a nursing home near where I live. And I was just there on Friday. And after we went for a walk outdoors, uh, pushing her in her wheelchair and breathing some fresh air, we came back in. We didn't stay out long because it was pretty chilly on Friday. And we came in, and I was there in the afternoon, and we got in at like 2.10, and I noticed uh, in the main room, the kind of big foyer where... People often hang out during the day. There's a notice board, and it said, music at 2.15. And I've been there on a couple of occasions when this has happened. It's such a simple thing, but I could almost weep telling you about it. It's so beautiful. People volunteer to come in and play music and sing for the residents. And, you know, usually just for an hour. But it's quite an hour. It's, it's really um, very cool <laughs> to be there for. So, you know, the guy who was playing on Friday, he wasn't even that good <laughs> in terms of, like, polish and, you know. But it was just the most beautiful thing. You know, he just set up this keyboard, and he said to the residents who were all gathered, you know, mostly in their wheelchairs. Um, Okay, I'm going to play you some tunes, you know, for the next hour. You know, some stuff from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I think you went up to like the 80s. (laughs) I thought, wow, that's quite a range. And then he did. And it's so fun for me to sit there and, and just watch what happens for people. So for some people, it almost seems like they're barely present, and some fall asleep, (laughs) so they just kind of snooze through it. But others, you know, um, who walk in, you know, walkers, and then sit down in a chair very uh, shakily, they're sort of dancing in their seats. And uh, there's a lot of joy and love. And even my mom, whose tendency is to actually kind of, for whatever reason, sort of try not to be happy. <laughs> Somehow music just kind of goes in. It, it, I see it kind of like water on a stone or something. It just kind of cracks or open sometimes. And We have had some of the sweetest moments that I can recall as an adult with her in being in that nursing home listening to music together where suddenly there are tears. You know, she's just moved by some old song and I can put out my hand and she takes it. You know, it's so sweet and so simple. And then the other piece for me is watching the the other people who work at this place, the aides and the nurses. Sometimes a nurse has to come in to give somebody their meds and just how they respond to people. There's so much care and tenderness. And again, it's really simple. It's just attention. They're paying attention to the person that they're talking to and that they're working with in that moment. And they're doing it with kindness. And it's 
it's incredible. We learn in the Theravada tradition that generosity is really where we start our practice. And also, one of the very first ways to generate that wholesome energy, that beneficial energy, merit, through acts of generosity. And again, it doesn't mean, you know, you have to be rich and hand over a lot of money. It can be in presence and kindness and maybe sharing music with folks who need it. In the Mahayana tradition, dana is the first of the ten perfections on the way to becoming a bodhisattva, one who awakens for the sake of all sentient beings. Sometimes we forget this. <laughs> you know, we get really concerned about our inner workings of our practice. You know, are we able to follow the breath? <laughs> are we seeing clearly enough? It's, it's a well-motivated concern, but sometimes slightly, it can get slightly askew. Sharon tells this lovely story uh, in her book, Loving Kindness, about one of her teachers coming to the United States from India. She doesn't say which one. And I just want to read you part of what she says. They asked this teacher, you know, what's your perspective? How do you see practice here in the West and, you know, in working with yogis here? What do you notice? While he was mostly very positive about what he saw, one critical thing stood out. Our teacher said that those practicing here in the West sometimes reminded him of people in a rowboat. They row and row and row with great earnestness and effort, but they neglect to untie the boat from the dock. He said he noticed people striving diligently for powerful meditative experiences, wonderful transcendence, going beyond space, time, body, and mind, but not seeming to care so much about how they relate to others in a day-to-day way. How much compassion do they express toward the plumber who is late or the child who makes a mess? How much kindness? How much presence? The path may lead to some powerful and sublime experiences, but the path begins here with our daily interactions with each other. I think sometimes it's good to be reminded of that. So doing good, practicing generosity, responding to the suffering that we see around us, the suffering in the world, with compassion. How can our lives be an expression of that compassionate action? This is something that really deepens and matures over our years of practice. Compassionate action really is is the expression of our deepest meditative understandings.
And until it really ripens and comes from that place of an integrated, deep understanding in our own experience, we may be holding it as a possibility, as a potential for ourselves, as a kind of a a beacon of where we might aim, where we might steer our lives. I'm sure you, well, I'm not sure, but I would guess (laughs) that you have heard or read the famous Indian sage Shantideva, the verses from the way of the Bodhisattva. But I'd like to share them with you. And really not as a way for us to measure ourselves against, like, oh my God, I will never get there. (laughs) But just as that potential that we all share in really expressing with with the whole of our beings, the whole of our lives, that natural compassionate action that flows out of our understanding. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful, and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all that they might need. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away, withholding nothing, to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus, for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, May I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. It's hard not to feel a little intimidated by that. And it's okay. Some years ago, I was going to a morning uh, gathering of people that practice this particular form of yoga together. Uh, I think it was like five days a week. This was some time ago. In a town not so far from Barrie, where I was living at the time. And so we got to know uh, this friend and I who were doing this, the, the other folks in this group. And there was one fellow who kind of coordinated it and helped it keep going. And at one point, he approached me knowing about my connection with IMS. And he asked if I would offer an evening of introduction to mindfulness meditation. And I said, no. Mm -mm." 
And he asked me again. In fact, he asked me a few times. And I kept brushing him off and just saying, no, you know, I'm really not ready for that. I was, I felt deeply aware of my unworthiness to do it. And then at one point, he sat me down at the end of this yoga session, and he just looked me in the eyes and he said, how can you not offer something that you love when other people are interested in it? And so I said, okay. (laughs) It was a really kind of... um, important reframing somehow for me. The way that he put it helped me to shift from that particular form of conceit, that negative self-image, not good enough, you know, not me, can't do that, to just let go of that and show up and try to offer, as best as I could, what was being asked for. So it was a shift to, uh, to do it. And I'm, I'm in debt to him for the way that he helped me look at it. In many spiritual traditions, there's this Maxim, remember the other, forget yourself. That's what helped me to just go and do this very simple thing that he was asking, really. Remember the other, forget yourself. through our practice in a very direct way, this is one of the, the things, the doorways to insight or understanding, this awareness of selflessness. The understanding, not theoretically, but experientially, of selflessness. It's really a gateway to this deeper alignment with the truth that we are not, we cannot be practicing for ourselves alone. It's impossible when we know that truth of selflessness, the flip side of which is this profound interconnection with all of life. How could we possibly be practicing for ourselves alone? Every time we struggle in our practice, perhaps with fear or a sense of limitation or difficult mental or emotional patterns arising or challenging energies in the body, we're also developing a very important quality when we meet all of that with mindfulness, when we practice bringing mindfulness to all of that. And it's the quality of empathy. The more we're able to open to our own suffering, the more we can be with others in their suffering. And the more we are committed to non-harming to not causing suffering. So there's a way that our, our understanding that our practice is for the benefit of others may at first be that, come from that place of knowing that we're not separate. So it's inevitable that our practice is for the benefit of others. And that can shift 
sometimes it does shift for us to trusting or aligning, making the benefit of others, the welfare of others, the very motivation for our practice. So we might already know that whatever understandings we gain in practice, it can't help but touch others. And how can our practice really serve others? How can our lives really be for the benefit of others? This is, uh, these are Pema Chodron's uh, words defining bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, the awakened heart of loving kindness and compassion. Absolute bodhicitta is our natural state, experienced as the basic goodness that links us to every other living being. It's been defined as openness, ultimate truth, our true nature, our soft spot, tender heart, or simply what is. It combines the qualities of compassion, unconditional openness, and keen intelligence. It is free from concepts, opinions, and dualistic notions of self and others. Relative bodhicitta is the courage to realize this tender, open-hearted quality by tapping into our capacity to love and care for others. Compassionate action is the expression, it is the activity of emptiness. Remember my friend that I told you about earlier, the one who had some trouble with the idea about dedicating merit at first. His other story that he told me on Thursday was this. There was a time after he'd been doing practice for some years and, uh, you know, doing retreats. His wife didn't, doesn't uh, share this form of practice, but they were with a mutual friend. And the friend asked his wife, she said, has it changed him? And so his wife thought about it for a minute. And then she said, yeah, he's a nicer person. And my friend's reaction was, that's it? (laughs) I put in all those hours and I go through all that suffering and that's it? A nicer person. (laughs) He has a refreshingly (laughs) open (laughs) nature. And that as he contemplated this and as he continued to practice, he saw that this was, in fact, not a small thing. He said, I thought, well, what if the world had a lot more nicer people in it? And he started to sense the potential of that. So I'd like to close with... uh, quotation from Aldous Huxley along these lines. It's a bit embarrassing to have been concerned with the human problem all one's life and find at the end that one has no more to offer by way of advice than this. Try to be a little kinder. Let's sit for a couple moments.
May the merit of our practice be dedicated to the welfare, the happiness, and the liberation of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.